Would you like to have a short history of race in the city of Dallas? Gerald Britt grew up here. He's a black pastor and works for City Square in Dallas, and he knows personally that history and will share it with you on Good God, coming right up. Welcome to Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. I'm your host, George Mason, and I'm here with my friend, Gerald Britt. Gerald is the Vice President of External Affairs for City Square, which is Dallas's premier agency for um, public, uh, the public good, I would say. Uh, benevolence work, of course, in part, but also uh, interested in good government, in uh, advocacy for the poor, and for opportunity to be equalized in, in the community. I'm not sure how else you would describe it, Gerald. <laughs> that's, not, that's not a bad description. All right, yeah. very good. Well, Gerald and I have been friends for nearly 30 years uh, as we've been, uh, first we were pastors together, right. and we're both Baptists, by the way. Right. And it's really, you know, it's a really important thing probably to recognize that um, when, a, when people talk about, about the American church, mm -hmm. They often talk about the American church as if it's one thing. Right, right. And, or Baptists as if we're one thing. We come in all flavors. And we come in all flavors. <laughs> and uh, it, it often reminds me, Gerald, of how often people talk about evangelical Christians and what they me really mean is white evangelical Christians. Exactly. You know, yeah. they, they don't really take account of the, the different uh, dimensions of all of that. Uh, but uh, you've been in Dallas a long time and uh, grew up here. Oh, my. So third generation preacher too. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So so what what was your call to ministry like? Was it the kind of thing where you almost had to figure this is the family business, or it, it, was it was it something that you you knew God was specially drawing you apart? You know, it, it's interesting that uh, for me it was it, it initially kind of started out as running away from the family business. Okay. Um, you know, I, I had thought first of all about being a professional football player. Uh -huh. uh, then I wanted to be a lawyer. Then I wanted to be engaged in what at that time was the social justice movement. Okay. Uh, I'd gone to hear Angela Davis at SMU, Dick Gregory at Bishop College. Uh, I think I frightened my mother and my grandfather to death because they didn't know what I was doing because I hadn't talked it over with them. Uh, but <laughs> it, was, it was wanting to be of service to my people in a substantial way. Right. Uh, but at the same time, if I could have avoided the ministry, I, I, I would have done that. And I had a couple of uh, coaches uh, who had, because after my senior year, I hadn't received any scholarship offers, although I got a lot of letters before then. And a couple of coaches got me a, uh, got me a scholarship to Tuskegee Institute. Right. And I'd filled out all the paperwork and was ready to sign it. And um, my parents were on board. And then something just spoke to me while I was getting ready saying, if you sign this, you're committed. And I couldn't sign it. And uh, after that, I began thinking, and I just, it was an impression upon my soul, which is the only way I can explain it, that made me know that the only way I would have be settled and have peace was to go into the ministry. So I preached my 
first sermon on April 20th of 1975. Wow. About three weeks before I graduated from high school. And then you went on to where? Bishop College. Right. And uh, was Bishop College for about a year and a half. Uh -huh. And um, then I uh, was associate minister and my grandfather's assistant pastor for about so, close to seven years. Right. And uh, then joined New Mount Moriah Baptist Church because that was a that was kind of a neutral, safe place for me. Okay. Uh, I didn't want to go join my father's church, and I didn't want to stay at my grandfather's church where I tell people I, I didn't know if I was good because the family kept telling me I was good or because I was good. Okay. And so I knew Mount Moriah, the pastor and I there, uh, became great friends over the course of maybe a couple of years. I would go over and talk right. with him, and he would then tell me stuff about the church that you would not figure any pastor would tell ah. a young preacher. And, and it didn't scare you off? No, it didn't. And then, then he, uh, I joined there. My yeah. wife and I joined there. And um, he began to show me even more. And uh, May 15th of, that, of 1982, about nine months after we had joined, he was killed in a car accident. Hmm. And, the, uh, and the, the deacons asked me to be interim pastor that night. Uh, they ordained me because I wasn't ordained at that <laughs> time. Ordained me so I could carry out the sacraments and do baptism. And from May until uh, September of that year, I served as interim pastor, and then they called me in September to be pastor. Wow. Uh, and how many years were you there? I was there 22 years. 22? 22 years. Okay. And uh, I, I tell people that it started out as a very traditional pastorate. Mm -hmm. All of, the, all of the, the, the trappings and all of the... Uh, uh, routine of a normal pastor in a relatively uh, poor setting, although we didn't think of it as that. And, um, and then after a while, uh, I got involved with Peter Johnson. Yeah. Peter uh, invited me to, or I was, I was encouraged to go to a meeting that Peter Johnson had, had called for pastors who were concerned about uh, the floods that had happened in bon at that time, what we call Bonton. Bonton, right. And <coughs> we should stop and say Peter Johnson, by the way, is a sort of legendary Dallas civil rights activist right. who was part of uh, uh, Martin Luther King's group and, right. and, and marched and, and was, uh, did, he, did he work for the Southern uh, Leadership Conference? He, he did. He wor worked with Southern Christian Leadership conference as an organizer and right. field agent. Right. And he's still around. He's still here. Yeah. He's yeah. still here. Still a very good friend of mine. Good. And um, he got me involved there. I was writing uh, speeches to go before City Hall. Uh, I was writing press releases. And I, I myself was presenting at City Hall at the time. And, and just kind of finding out what that. And then he got me involved in the uh, protest uh, to to stop the city council from appealing Judge Buckmeyer's ruling on uh, that that the city had to have single member districts. Right. And right. I remember the very first uh, action that we had. He had me. Uh, he pushed me in the front to help lead a march of right. 900 people from the Kennedy uh, Kennedy Memorial to City Hall. And so there, there, it was me, it was Zan Holmes, it was Roy Williams, it was Martin Luther King sure. III, 
Yeah, Marvin uh, Crenshaw maybe. Yeah, Marvin yeah. Crenshaw. Yeah, yeah. And so we led that march. And uh-huh. that's kind of how my foray into public life began. You know, it's interesting you say that because <coughs> that, me. that would have been back probably around 1990 or right. so, somewhere right. in there. Right. Uh, and and the the decision about uh, the 14-1 versus the 12-4-1 plan, right. which right. was the you know the the, the four at-large districts was right. the the other thing, uh, was. Uh, was was probably the first public issue I stepped out on as well mm-hmm. in my pastorate. And I was really surprised at how much pushback I got. Yeah. Uh, because, uh, you know, it, it seemed only logical that if we were gonna change uh, the sense of full participation uh, that had been denied to people in various districts uh, in, in this city, uh, that we would end up with, we, we needed to end up with the single member districts. Right. Uh, otherwise, everything still looked like the old oligarchy was gonna continue to uh, exercise undue influence over, over other folks. And their argument was, this is just gonna create ward politics and all that kind of thing. Well, what is democracy anyway? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> you know? exactly. I mean, really. Exactly. And uh, so, uh, but I, I remember that being a challenging time when I, I realized, okay, George, if you're going to step out on these things, <laughs> you just this is the way it's going to be. You yeah, know, so. yeah. It, and, and we got pushback from the black community as well. Did uh, you really? Oh, yeah, yeah. Why there, is that? There were, there were those who had benefited from the status quo. Well, that's that gets into the whole accommodation thing exactly. too, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah. And and yeah. there were there were preachers that I admired and respected, right. and and had uh, um, had uh, uh, followed for years. Yes. Who were who were challenging us? Yes. On the wisdom of doing this, and so you know, yeah, we got pushback from all around. I think that uh, a we were too young to know any better. Yes. B, uh, we had a sense of justice that told us that this had to happen. Yes. And and so and and Peter was an excellent mentor, the, and and he allowed us to to grow into leadership while mm-hmm. giving us a sense of the flavor of what the civil rights movement had been before. Yes. And and so it was it was a challenging, harrowing time, uh, but again, you know, the results were worth it. And if it had not been for 14-1 passing, right. uh, we wouldn't have single-member districts in, on the school board. We would not have single-member right. districts in county government, right. uh, which means there would have been no John Wiley Price. It means there would not have been an Yvonne Ewell or right. a Kathleen Gillum or any of the right. ones we see today. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, yeah, it has its drawbacks. It has not produce the type of leadership or, uh, or, or politicians, frankly statesmen I call them, that mm-hmm. I had hoped would, uh, uh, it would produce. Uh, but you know, that political maturity takes time. Yes. And I think it's gonna take time for the electorate to grow, even though it's been, what, 20 some odd years. But it's gonna take the electorate to grow to understand the type of leaders that we need, and it's going to take uh, a, a new level of respect for that maturity yes. uh, to for for it to go. So, uh, so I, I think it's um, it, for those who who are listening or watching, uh, who are in the white community of Dallas and throughout the United States, 
this is a, very common in in cities. Right. There's there's a sense from some that the black community is thinks as as, as one. Uh, that you know it's right. it, it it has uh, a a single mind about about public issues and right. that sort of thing. But we know that's not true. Right. Uh, and I think it it's probably helpful to be able to to recognize that uh, that, that there are. Uh, there are elements who are more progressive and more conservative, both in, right. the, in the black community just as well as in the white community. Right. And that's true in the churches, too. Exactly, exactly. Uh, when you look at how the, the black church, per se, in Dallas uh, it has mm, evolved over the time you've been here, what observations do you have? Well, I, you know, I, I, I think that, um, frankly, the political influence that the black church has in the black community is overestimated and, wow. and has been for some time. Okay. Uh, there is still political influence uh, that it has and it's recognized and respected as well as it should be. Uh, but as you say, the black community itself is not monolithic. Right. And so there are more uh, there, there are more liberal voices out there, more progressive voices, one might say. Uh, who don't agree with stances that are taken by the church. Uh, there are some stances, frankly, that the church should take that it hasn't taken. Right. And so we've, we've, got, we've got to work on that. Uh, I think that there was, during the time when I was growing up as a pastor, as, and as well as before, there were, there were more structures in place uh, for political thought and for uh, to give birth to politicians, the structures that gave birth, if you will, to a Zan home. Ministerial alliances being exactly, one of them. Exactly. Which, which now, instead of being um, one or two, they're, they're all broken up into different exactly. kinds of coalitions. Exactly. Yeah. And, right. and, you know, when I, was, when I became a pastor, there were two National Baptist Conventions, right three state conventions, mm -hmm. about 19 or 20 mm -hmm. district associations. Now they're like five state national conventions. Right. I don't know how many state conventions there are or local. Right. Uh, so, and then there's the rise of the non-denominational churches. Yes. All of which have kind of sapped some strength away from right. traditional Protestant African-American uh, right. uh, 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 denominations. So, so there's a fracturing that takes place mm -hmm. uh, that calls for a new, new type of coalition building. Right. And there is this reluctance I see on the part of many uh, pastors that I would, would have thought we've overcome by now uh, to address issues uh, substantively yes. that impact our community. Well, it's not just in your community, it's in ours too. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and I hate that we continue to have to say your community and our community right. when this is our community yeah. altogether. Yeah. Uh, but let's take a break and come back and address some of those things that we'd like to see the church address more okay. uh, distinctively. All right. Thank you for continuing to tune in to Good God. This program is available, as many of you already know, in various formats. You can take it as a podcast that uh, is delivered to all the places you would go, whether Apple Podcasts or uh, Google Play, uh, and, and you can hear it weekly and you can subscribe to it. A new episode drops every Thursday morning, and so we invite you to do that and subscribe. 
Uh, you can also find the video format in various places on the Facebook page where we invite you to like Good God. Uh, you can also find it on YouTube and on VocalNow, V-O-K-A-L-N-O-W.com, VocalNow. Uh, so these are various places you can go. I'd also want to tell you that you can go to the website. That's, that's www.goodgodproject.com, goodgodproject.com. And there you can find an archive of all of our previous episodes. If you like what you hear on any given week, you might actually uh, like to have a transcript of the conversation. And if you go to the website, goodgodproject.com, you can find a transcript there also uh, where you can cut and paste and uh, use uh, what's been said in that conversation. Uh, so we'd invite you to find various ways to continue to tune in and to enjoy these conversations. One special thing I want to say is thank you to the friends of this program who have contributed financially to make it possible for us to do this without inviting you to have to give. Uh, we're grateful for the support of friends of this program, and I hope that you will be too. Please tell your friends about Good God and continue to tune in. Thanks for being part of it. We're back with Gerald Britt. Gerald, we were talking about the black church and its role in Dallas, uh, but that also goes to a question of why we have to be talking about a black experience in Dallas and a white experience in Dallas. Mm. Why can't we have one city of Dallas? And there's a long history to this tension and how we have accommodated uh, this in order to have a city. The phrase, the accommodation, uh, is one that you hear uh, in the wind a lot in mm. Dallas, but it has a very specific uh, history to it. Can you describe what that is? Yeah, well, the accommodation is the title of Jim Schutz's book, Jim right. Schutz, who writes for the Dallas Observer. Uh, and, and it reflects upon a time, late 50s into the 60s and 70s, uh, where, where leadership, particularly in the black community, was uh, an accommodation to uh, uh, the, the desires of, of the white community uh, not to disrupt, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, civic life in Dallas. Right. And so, and so seg desegregation in Dallas happened not through protest and demonstration, but by fiat mm -hmm. uh, and, and a recognition that, a recognition that uh, Dallas would not be an attractive place to visit or to live if we had the same type of disruption that you had in Birmingham or in Selma. Right. And so, and so uh, uh, there, were there was leadership in Dallas uh, that had ties to white leadership that would allow uh, uh, the selection, if you will, mm -hmm. of leaders whom they found acceptable and and uh, un un untroubling mm -hmm. uh, to, to uh, rise to uh, be candidates for city council and the like. And, and that did not, uh, it, it, it didn't produce the altogether lack of tension because even on school boards and city councils, these were leaders who had to fight for credibility. 
Yeah. And and so and and fight for respect and fight to have their voices heard. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of the way it happened. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if you remember the the when when the uh, Brown versus Board of Education mm-hmm. uh, uh, ruling came down from the city council uh, from the Supreme Court. Uh, there was this uh, uh, film that was made uh, that was supposed to have gotten Dallas ready for desegregation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and the film does not have one black or brown face in it. Wow. Uh, but it speaks to whites actually telling them to act respectable and to, and to, and to understand that the, the law had changed or whatnot, but didn't have any pictures of black or brown children didn't have any uh, voices of African Americans talking about this hmm. this change. It was it was directed towards whites. Mm-hmm. That is kind of the way the accommodation worked. Right. And so uh, it it what it produced is it, what a lot of us refer to as as in Dallas as, as a boil that hasn't been lanced in Dallas. Okay. Right. And 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 people are still afraid of lancing that boil uh, because they're afraid of the ugliness that might spill out. Well, so the Urban Institute came out with its study mm-hmm. uh, that said that Dallas uh, came in 274th out of 274 major cities in America right. in terms of its uh, inequalities mm-hmm. uh, that that. that are mainly racial and, and economic inequalities right. uh, here in Dallas. So the the net effect over time of the way we have done business in Dallas, the way our politics has been structured, the right. way our neighborhoods and our schools have been structured, the consequence of all of that has not been uh, just to create uh, a, a society in which everyone participates well and eagerly and flourishes, but instead a deep divide that exists. Right. I, in my 30 years in Dallas, I haven't seen a time that has been more precarious. Right. Uh, that I, I don't think that the white community in Dallas understands just how much seething, anger, resentment, and frustration exists uh, because of this long history and this lack of willingness to, to address directly the things that are about the everyday life right. of, of uh, black Dallas uh, folks and, and, and not, just, uh, not just the African-American community. I think it's felt in, in the Latino community right. as well. Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, a, as we try to look at what happens at city council, as we try to think about uh, issues of affordable housing and about education and about all these sorts of things, there is a racial factor to almost everything we do right. in Dallas. Right. Yeah. I mean. I mean. You know. The the idea of white supremacy that that literally seeps through mm-hmm. our entire existence, unknown and unbeknownst to many of us in right. terms of how it affects our everyday living. Right. Uh, you know, from be it from Confederate monuments right. uh, to to uh, uh, the the meager attempts at equity in the city council mm-hmm. and, and the school district. Mm-hmm. All of that has to do with white supremacy and whites feeling as if they're giving something. Yes. To, to, to Right. It's, 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 it's about our charitable instincts, yeah. but we created a structure, a system of life together that 
disproportionately advantaged one people right. and disadvantaged another, and then we also are asking for credit when we give uh, right. generously certain kinds of uh, of, of uh, gifts back in, in some right. way, which is not the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be that everyone is deserving of their own place. Well, you know, you, own, yeah, I, I, we, we have a, you know, we have at City Square, we have a book club every month, uh -huh. and there were, there were, there have been some some older uh, white uh, uh, supporters who have come from now, and when we would talk about race, their complaint would be, you talk about, you talk about this as if there's been no progress. Right. And when you stop and think about it, uh, um, you know, the, 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 the hundred years from the period after slavery ended to just say 1963, 1965, was one of the most brutal periods of segregation and Jim Crow in mm -hmm. which people were lynched with impunity, right. raped without accountability, mm -hmm. uh, economically deprived in some of the most heinous ways that you can figure. And to say that you don't give us any credit for, for <laughs> uh, you, you, you mean you want credit for being human. Right. You right. want credit for treating me as if I'm a human being. Right. And, and which does not inure to, to any type of benefit that suggests my equality or e equity in, right. with the, uh, equity of opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so that, that is where we've got to move to now. Um, well, it's where we have to move to, and it <coughs> seems to me that um, we, we are in a place where now uh, we can't continue to just ignore these realities that right. you've talked about and to pretend that we can just make small incremental progress. Right. Uh, we have to take on structurally what is wrong inside of us and what is wrong uh, outside of us right. and do this as a, as a complementary matter. It, it's, I, I feel like the white church has said and elements of the black church as well, change a person's heart and then everything will change. Right. Uh, well, you know, that's actually not the way the biblical prophet spoke of it. It's not the way Jesus spoke of it. Right. Uh, but it is, a, it is the way the church has largely avoided getting in trouble right. with each other right. and with uh, people in public, but it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't seem to connect. You, you change your heart with, with God, right. and we don't see the net effect of that in terms of the way we do business, the right. way we choose our schools, right. the way we... Play, have our children integrate, right. it stays the same. Exactly. Yeah, you know, I, I had a friend of mine who I love dearly, and she was telling me that she, she was saying that, that um, uh, I'm trying to change the world one person at a time. Yeah, yeah. And I told her, I said, we'll all be dead by then. Yeah. You know, that, that, right. that, that there has to be some substantive change that takes place over time. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but we all have to be made somewhat uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. uh, and you, know, you and I talked. All right, early. so I, let's <laughs> go ahead, go ahead and hit me with it, Gerald. Go ahead and hit but, me with it, because we we go way back. Yeah. And so there's a conversation that you and I have in in my office yeah. years and years ago. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So go ahead and talk about this. Yeah, but you know, I'd come over there to talk to you about becoming a, a, a member of Dallas area and a faith, and explaining to you what we do and all that. And we, I think, we drifted into a conversation about race and uh -huh. challenging congregations and whatnot. And, and, and so, you know, at, at a certain point, you said, uh, 
Well, Gerald, you know, nobody wants to be uncomfortable. And and I thought about that, and I said, okay, that's where he is. And, right. and you know, that's fine. You know, you and I have remained friends over the years. I've watched you grow in that regard. <laughs> and I've Thank watched, God. <laughs> and I've watched in a number of your sermons that you preach here at Wilshire. And I said, well, it looks like he's trying to make people uncomfortable, man. <laughs> yeah, that's what they would say, too, I'm afraid. <laughs> but I mean, but, but I think to build substantive relationships that last over time where neither one of you go away from the table, yeah. neither one of you stop talking, yeah. neither one of you stop talking about the things that are important to one another, right. neither one of you, where you get to the point where you're actually listening to someone and not just waiting to hear somebody else talk. Uh, that is, that's where this begins. Yeah. And, and that happens over time. Right. Uh, the idea that you talked about when you, when you talked about one, one segment of the population uh, exercising its dominance to the disadvantage of another, that is the definition of racism. Yep. And, and people don't get that. People think that racism is just simply, you don't like me because I'm white or you don't like me because I'm black. Right. Racism has to do with power. Right. Racism has to do with the ability to impact through policy, through economics, the way another person lives. Yes. And, and, and to the degree that we began to take that seriously is a degree that we, we'll see just how, just how badly uh, a whole segment of our population is doing the lack of the lack of not only economic resources but the lack of educational opportunity the lack of of of, of, of jobs the lack of uh, transportation the lack of health care right. all of that is 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 sourced out of racism right. and if we don't get that straight we'll be able to we'll be able to to, to put some band-aids on this wound but again, we'll never be able to fully lance this boil and let this poison out so that we can all be better. Well, I want to thank you for hanging in there with me over the years. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and I, you know, we laugh about that, but it's not really a laughing matter. Right. You know, uh, this, is, this is part of what our duty is to each other, right. uh, in part as um, fellow Christians, as uh, brothers in Christ, as part part as ministers, part as just human beings who are neighbors, who have to pay attention to one another. And unfortunately, we do find ourselves in a position right now, I fear, in our country where um, we, we, we aren't being patient with one another. Right. Uh, I understand the impatience, but uh, if we fall out of relationship with that impatience, right. we don't give anybody a chance to grow. Exactly. And uh, God knows we you know, we want we want things to change quickly, uh, and 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 maybe there are strategies for that to happen, of course. But over the long course of time, we have to know one another. Right. So thank you for your patience and for your, uh, you know, for your deliberate uh, consistency over all these years. We have a lot more to talk about. We're going to do another episode. So okay. thanks for being with us on Good God. Well, thank we'll you. come back. All right. I'm your host, George Mason. And I'm pleased to welcome back to the program, Gerald Britt. Glad to be Gerald here. is the Vice President of External Affairs for City Square. 
And I think, Gerald, maybe we should just stop at this point to give you a chance to talk about what you do and what City Square really does, because it's uh, such an important uh, player in Dallas. Well, you know, uh, City Square is an organization that works to fight poverty uh, from the standpoint of direct service and advocacy. So we've got a number of different programs uh, that address uh, direct service, mm. uh, food pantry, job training, um, housing and the like. And then in terms of advocacy, that's work that I and my team do. And so we do any number of things to, to both accentuate uh, the, the programs that we have but also to work to, to build relationships with other nonprofits and other programs that we hope will enhance our work and that whose work we can enhance as well. Well, I, I do think it's important that we always help people to recognize the distinction uh, that is not a difference uh, that we, we want to have to choose from, and that right. is charity or justice. Exactly. They are two different modalities of right. how we care for the community. Right. But uh, one or the other always leaves a gap, right? right? And so I would say that uh, if, you know, if we go back to the, the whole concept of, uh, of give a man a, a fish and he'll eat for a day, right. give a man, teach a man to fish and he'll eat for a lifetime, uh, that, you know, that's one way to look at that, but of course, if 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 somebody builds a fence around the pond, <laughs> and then locks it right. so you can't even if you know how to fish, you can't get can't, there exactly. so you can do that. Right. That turns into a matter of justice. Exactly. That's about. Exactly. That's more than just a strategy of helping create personal responsibility right. and helping create skills that make a person. Right. It, it it is about. Do we all have opportunity and access here? that is God-given and a right for us to participate. And so the advocacy part of that really focuses more on, on that question of what happens to that, about that fence. Exactly, right? yeah, yeah. exactly. So, so and a lot of people either know it or don't associate this work with City Square or may ask, what does this have to do with City Square? But we work on issues of public education. Yes. We work on issues of job training. We work on providing uh, access. Uh, as a matter of fact, we are organizing right now a um, a, uh, a forum, uh, a mayor's forum for after the uh, uh, the uh, election in, in May. Yes. Uh, because we believe that politics is 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 an important part of citizenship, yes. and we're not just trying to we I, we're we're trying to kind of recalibrate a little bit of mm -hmm. way City Square talks about itself. And I heard a phrase. Uh, the other day in a meeting that I really like, we're trying to provide people with pathways out of poverty, ah. and 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 one of those pathways is by participating in government mm -hmm. and participating in meaningful ways in government, not just getting people to vote, right. but to getting them involved in politics because I think that is going to be a way that people are able to to help determine their own future. Right. Well, so when we when we talk about. Uh, addressing matters of advocacy. We've had one recently here uh, that uh, has been uh, very public and it's been something we've been working side by side about and that is uh, to, to take down the Confederate monuments right. in Dallas that have right. presided over our city 
in a symbolic way. Right. It always um, it, it always makes me smile a little bit, and then frustrates me when I hear people say, "Well, you know, what's the big deal? They're just statues, right. you know, and uh, you know they're just they're just symbols." Of, and I say, wait, wait a minute. So is so is baptism. So is the Lord's Supper. Right. So are you know? They're not just. They're not right. mere symbols. Right. They represent something. They mean something about who we say we are right. and and that sort of thing. So, you you have been passionate about uh, the the inappropriateness and 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 really the the wickedness of continuing to defend these symbols of the Confederacy and injustice that took the lives of, 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 of black Americans uh, and, with impunity right. uh, and, uh, and, and made it a, a cause that uh, these represent a kind of cultural amnesia right. uh, and, and an intentional offense to right. a part of our community. Uh, the speech you made at our church actually was was a dramatic one in which you addressed that. What were some of the key points that you would want to say to people as to why this has to to change? You know, because I, I, you know, a I think it's a very important that we understand some uh, a few basic historical facts. A the Confederacy lost the war. <laughs> I think that's very important place to begin. Right. Right. Uh, they were not at the time that they were fighting, Americans. Right. They were citizens of a foreign country. They seceded. Exactly. Exactly. Nobody forced them to secede. Right. They, they decided to secede. Mm -hmm. So that that's one thing, which which means, in in, in effect, they were traitors. Mm -hmm. They were traitors to, to the American government. Mm -hmm. It is only by, I know that some of them may hate to hear this, it's only by the compassion of Lincoln Mm -hmm. that they weren't treated as traitors after, after the Union won right. the war. So that's one thing. The other thing, too, is we have to understand what the true legacy of the Confederacy is and, and, and that war was. The true legacy is not valiant soldiers or uh, valiant people who fought for ideals like state rights. The true legacy is Jim Crow and segregation, a period during which 4,000 people were lynched, mm -hmm. a period during which our rights were taken away, and were, were given, taken away, and barely acknowledged uh, after a period of 100 years. And these monuments all over the South were put up every time progress was being made. Exactly. As a way of reinforcing white supremacy and, and continuing to make the claim that black people would never have the same opportunity to participate fully in, 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 our, in local communities. Exactly, and, and, and I, I am proud of my people in the sense that they, ha they have persisted uh, throughout that period. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I said in the speech was, uh, you know, when, when, when black people were not being able to be buried in cemeteries or, or prepared for uh, burial in funeral homes that were owned and operated by we, white people, we built our own. We bought our own cemeteries. When we weren't able to shop in stores, we, we developed our own. When you wouldn't provide us with insurance, we get, developed our own insurance companies. Uh, every area that, that, we, that roadblocks were thrown up uh, to prevent us from participating like, and prove our competence and our ability to participate in public life, 
we proved just the opposite by building our own. Not because we thought it was right, but because that's what it had to be. Mm -hmm. And so, and so na those, those monuments are structures that harken back to a day when we were determined to be less than human. Uh, they, are, they are reminders of a period during which our ancestors were whipped and beaten with impunity and were literal, literal property uh, yes. by law and by custom of mm -hmm. a people. It, it shouldn't have been, but it was. Mm -hmm. And so why do you want to keep those reminders up? I hear people talking about using them as, as teaching tools. Well, they've been up now for 100 years. When are, when are we going to start the lesson? Yeah. And if they are such great monuments, why, aren't we, why, aren't we, why don't we have anybody calling to put them in the middle of Preston, uh, uh, Prestonwood? Or why don't we have them in Highland Hills? Or why don't we move them out to North, to North Dallas where those mm -hmm. people who claim that these are such great teaching tools can mm -hmm. use them as that. Mm -hmm. We don't need those monuments as teaching tools. We've got hundreds of thousands of books, uh, uh, documentaries, and other types of legitimate teaching tools to, tell, to teach people the truth about the evils of slavery, the dangers of, of Jim Crow and segregation, uh, and the horrors of that period of our lives. And so uh, that is uh, that's why I think they need to be taken down. Well, and it's, the, the claim is often made that you can't erase history. Uh, you can't rewrite history. But what's ironic about the, those claims is that these very monuments were attempting to do just that. Right, exactly. That they were attempting to reinterpret the whole cause of the Civil War. Right. Uh, and the, the whole uh, point of the Confederacy, which was, to maintain white supremacy and the legacy of slavery and the, the predominance of this idea that uh, God had established an order in the universe right. and that human beings right. uh, were a hierarchy and maybe even uh, black uh, Americans were not fully human <coughs> to begin with. Right. And so uh, it, it kept reinforcing, that's the statement that, that those monuments reinforced and, uh, uh, and instead of the noble cause of, uh, of the South and states' right. rights and the like. Right. Yeah, they, the, the very statues themselves are denials of history. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and so it is ironic that, yeah. that they say that by taking them down, we are, we are trying to, to erase history. We're not trying to erase history by taking them down. We're trying to redeem history. Right. And we're trying to make and, and trying to present a clear factual uh, basis on which to judge history so that we don't do th this never happens again. Well, and if we really care about about history, we're not going to just take these down. We might. It's time for mon monuments to people who were lynched in Dallas too. Right. So Alan Brooks, for instance, right. who was who was lynched at Maine and Ackert, right. and who's uh, who is represented in Montgomery in right. um, Brian Stevenson's uh, tremendous mu uh, museum there uh, to, to American lynching. Uh, I mean, maybe it's time, if we want an educational moments right. in Dallas, right. let's be honest about right. the history of how we've we functioned there and not just say, we, we want to remember this part, but we don't want to remember that part. Exactly, and, and, and you hear these arguments for what's called contextualization, whatever that means, I, yeah. I, I don't get that. Uh, there can be no contextualization that puts 
a statue that includes Robert E. Lee, Jeb Davis next to a Juanita Kraft uh-huh. or a Martin Luther King right. or an Al Lipscomb for that matter. Right. Uh, there's no contextualiz- contextualization that can present those two characters mm-hmm. or those characters on equal footing. Yes. Uh, they, they are. And, and before we do anything like that, I will call for no monuments. Right. right. Uh, because I, I, it, what it shows is that we're, we are still trying to appease people who, by and large, have latent or obvious racist tendencies and sympathies. And, and uh, you know, it, what it means is for all of Dallas's pretext of wanting to be an international city, we will be a caricature of an international city and not a real substantive international right. city. Right. Well, I, I think we want to get into a little more about how we move toward a new Dallas mm-hmm. and how we do politics together differently mm-hmm. because the day has come when it's time for us to work together and, and figure out what is needed from each of our communities so that we can trust one another, that we can build a sense of all being in this together to prosper together. And so when we come back from the break, let's be constructive about that and see where we go. All right. Okay. One of the challenges we face in the fight against poverty is that it is such a big, broad problem that it can be overwhelming to people. Can I really make a difference? Is that something I can really impact? And the answer is yes. My name is John Seibert. I am President and Chief Operating Officer at City Square. The mission of City Square is to fight the causes and effects of poverty through service, advocacy, and friendship. Now, the service takes the form of about 17 different programs. Advocacy takes the form of different forms of community organizing and uh, really speaking up for neighbors in poverty. And then really the key, the secret sauce to who we are at City Square is friendship. City Square is uh, really in the people business. And so our fight against poverty is all about uh, relationships and investing in people. There are no clients, uh, there are only neighbors. And we're all in this together as friends and in community as one. And so I think when we focus more on recognizing our shared humanity, that's when poverty doesn't stand a chance. We're back with Gerald Britt of City Square. And Gerald, uh, before the break, we got to talking about how we work together in the future to create a new Dallas. And I'll tell you that, you know, what you already know, and that is we've been together in various organizing events uh, for social change in Dallas through the years. But pretty much every time I do, I hear from people in my community about, you know, why, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you out there? You know, it, 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 it makes them uncomfortable, as we've said, uncomfortable right. in the past. Right. It's, it's, it, it's too much politics. We need to just be doing religion, not politics. Right. Leave the politics to the politicians. And, and, uh, and sometimes it's, um, it, it's a feeling of somewhat betrayal of uh, the white community that, you know, you're, <clears throat> you're out there. What would you say, first of all, to people in white churches in Dallas about, you know, a lot of, a lot of my colleagues, I think, would like to do more. Mm-hmm. And they feel somehow that they are constrained by uh, this sense that they have a congregation that is, um, they're going to lose their trust if they're out there on the front lines uh, in, in this way. 
what do you want them to hear? You know, I, A, I'd, I'd like for them to listen to some of George Mason's sermons. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank I, you. I think, because I think you make the case just as well as anybody does. I, and, and I, you know, I, I, I would tell them pretty much what I even tell black churches. Um, you know, black churches that are concerned about being too political and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I tell, you know, politics has the lights on. We don't pay our, we don't, we don't pay the light bill for New Mount Moriah Baptist Church to heaven. We have to pay that uh, to a, to a company that is regulated by politics. Ah, right. You know, we we have we, we run water in the baptismal pool to baptize people. We don't. We, there, there is no heavenly outpost where we go to pay that bill. That's paid right. downtown right. and regulated by politics. Right. Everything our parishioners come to us for, whether it be health care, whether it be jobs or whatnot, ultimately is regulated by politics. So we have to talk about politics mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because it touches every, our everyday life. Right. Then you also have to understand that politics is the means by which in the public square we settle the, or sh- it should be a place where we settle the arguments about how we're going to live together. Yes. And and so, uh, you know, everybody doesn't go to church, mm-hmm. and yet, and so everybody won't understand uh, the the what the Bible says about divorce or mm-hmm. what it says about uh, any number of the doctrinal issues that that concern us as people of faith, mm-hmm. but they do understand. Uh, when it comes to issues of gun control, mm-hmm. when it comes to issues of uh, jobs and, and economic development. Mm-hmm. And as we are talking about that, we've got to talk not just to one another. We've got to be able to talk to the rest of the world. Right. And we've got to be able to talk to the rest of the world in a language mm-hmm. that makes sense to them. Yes. And, and we uh, Without losing our faith at the same time. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Well— when we talk about getting involved, though, politically, the usual way that people in the white community do that is by having relationships with politicians, people we've supported, people right. we know, people we go to church with, people right. we go to the country club with, and all of that. All of these things that I'm saying are part of my experience. All right. Right. So the truth of the matter is I can pick up the phone and call or text a lot of people in public office right. and they will hear from me right. and, and we will have be able to get I'll be able to get in touch with them and we'll be able to talk. Well that access is something that is not a reality for everyone in Dallas, Texas. Right. Even if it should be, right. it's not. So the 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 idea of organizing, of protesting, of of bringing people together to make claims of public officials. Uh, that's something that's somewhat foreign to people who have uh, the privileged access to, right. pub- to, to officials, and so it makes them very uncomfortable. But it really is democracy, isn't it? Exactly, yeah, it is, it is what I refer to as advanced democracy. Okay. It goes beyond, it goes beyond just voting, and it goes beyond just uh, have going to listening to a speech or reading a position paper by, by a politician. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is substantive engagement at a very uh, important level. Right. And, and what I will tell people all the time is that if I go down to, to City Hall with a Michael Waters or an Edwin Robinson right. or uh, any number of my other right. friends who, who are engaged politically, 
they pretty much know what to do with us. Yes. And they pretty know what to say right. with us. Right. Uh, but if I go down there with you and right. I go down with Jeff Warren and right. I go down with any number of our white Matthew pastors. Matthew Ruffner or whatever. Yeah. Andy Stoker. And we go down there together. Right. right. And we're all staying the same thing. Yeah. Right. That gets a different kind of reaction. Right. And and that's because they know they can't they can't just hand us the same old line, right? And think that it, now is that the way it should be? Actually, it is the way it should be. Hmm. And and so that's why you know I've I've challenged even white pastors mm-hmm. uh, during the both of John shooting mm-hmm. to 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 come out and to have. Right. I, I talked with somebody. I said, you know, white pastors need to have their own press conference. Yes. About this. Right. Uh, not under the safe covering of having me and Brian Carter and some others stand behind them, but have their own because they need to see. Yes. That these men are standing for justice and that it's important to their community, just like it's important to ours. You know, it's it it's sometimes difficult when you uh, are trying in the white community to. Uh, as the white pastors, uh, when I talk to them, you know, there's, there's a feeling of we, you know, if we if we only do something ourselves, does that say that we think we're, um, you know, we we don't need you, uh, or we're gonna we're gonna solve this problem without you right. and uh, and whatnot? And then there's the other side of, that's confusing when, you know, we we will say to to you, Gerald, you know, what do you need us to do? Right. As if you know, that's a great mystery. You know, I mean, I'm glad, I'm glad you said that because I, I I got tired of saying it. Well, I mean, you know, it, it is it is sort of ridiculous. Like, hello, just 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 say the truth. Yeah. You know, speak the truth yeah. and be there. Yeah. You know, but we you know we we need to ask permission somehow or yeah. ask instructions because we're, you know, but but part of that is just that we, you know, we. We're looking for ways always to protect ourselves while we're also prophetic, and right. it's th- that's <laughs> it's very it difficult. Doesn't like it doesn't work like that, yeah. you know. And and if I've had, you know, if I if I had a nickel for every time someone said, "Be careful, George." Yeah. Be careful, right. you know. You you know you got with, with some of these relationships, you're gonna you're getting a little too far out there. Right. Well, what does that mean out there? <laughs> like out there in where Jesus is, you know, out there where, where God is at work, out there where, you know, where it makes us uncomfortable, but because there's a difference, there's a gap between the way the world is and the way God has called us to make the world. Exactly. And in that gap is where we live. And we, we've got to acknowledge that and that's going to cost us something. Exactly, and I and and I think I think that's exactly right. You cannot take a prophetic stance and have it cost, have it not cost. Right. Uh, it 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 just does. Mm-hmm. Uh, old preachers used to say you can be you can be prophetic or you can be a pastor. You can't do both. <laughs> well, and yeah, and 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 the the. We dispute that. Yeah, we you know it's kind of a harsh saying, but I but what I think what they mean is you can you can have you can have the the, the dynamic and the and the and the uh, the dynamism of a prophetic ministry, or you can have a comfortable pastoral ministry. Right, right, right. And and you can't, but you can't do both. But if you love people, if you if, and if they know if they know you love them, right. 
uh, and you are there for them right. over a long period of time, right. uh, you know, th th there may be rifts that happen between you, right. but um, but our call is not just to make life comfortable for each other. Right. Well, yeah, and, and Larry James says the same thing, that, that and, and I've experienced that as well. If you spend enough time bearing enough people, right. uh, baptizing enough people, mm -hmm. visiting enough folk in the hospital, right. uh, making sure that people have, uh, you know, are, mm -hmm. are taught and they'll give you a tremendous amount of license yes. to do some of the more what people might consider the eclectic stuff that sure. we're talking about. Sure. Uh, they understand uh, when the pastor has to go out and speak at City Hall or mm -hmm. speak at a, uh, about a controversial issue, and they will support that. Uh, and so, I th you know, I, th I think that to, to white pastors, I would just say, the water's fine. Mm -hmm. You know, you just need to come on come in. Come on in. Yeah. Come on in. Exactly. Yeah. Well, the waters have to be troubled sometimes, too. Exactly. Uh, in, exactly. in order for them ever to be calm. And uh, you can't do it the other way around. Exactly. You know, so, uh, but, you know, I, I understand the critique also in that it's hard to do both things well, and it's right. necessary to do both things right. well, that uh, people need to know that we care about their souls. Right. You know, we care about... Uh, their relationship to God. Right. We care about their uh, confidence of their um, uh, their spiritual life and their their capacity to pray and their uh, the, their families and the, the you know the, the way they care for one another. But it's also necessary for us to keep the second part of that great commandment, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. Exactly. Exactly. And 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 I think. Uh, that understanding that it's important to be there. I explained to, to one friend of mine, you know, sometimes I have to be Martin Luther King, sometimes I have to be Billy Graham. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and, and so uh, the people that I preach to need both. Right. And right. it's important for me to keep that, that balance in mind. Right, right. And, and I think it's fair to say that you can go into most black churches in Dallas, Texas, and hear that very same thing taking place. Yeah. Uh, and it's not like, it, I think sometimes the white churches have the sense that in it's all politics all the time in the black church in exactly. Dallas, Texas. Exactly. And that's certainly not true. <laughs> not at it's, all. In fact, sometimes to the frustration of the people in the pew. Exactly. You know. Yeah, you, you, hear, you, you hear a number of, 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 of complaints that my pastor isn't political enough or isn't right, right. engaged enough. Some of those pastors are engaged in levels that we don't know about. That's right. And are doing work that we don't know about. So right. we have to be fair about this. Uh, but but at the same time, uh, they they have to understand that that uh, there are a number of people who come there uh, to be comforted, a number of people who are in grief, a number That's of right. people who are suffering That's right. through any number of types of losses that you can't imagine. That's right. They have to be spoken to as well, mm -hmm. and so you have to preach that prophetic word, yes, but you also have to preach a pastoral word. Well, and I I think people often mistake. Uh, politics uh, and, and partisanship. Right, uh, right. It, it's, it's not about getting up in the pulpit and, and, and naming all the ills of the opposing party right. uh, who you might not like, right. you know, uh, so that you are 
in a position where you're only leveraged with one sort of people, with one sort of political approach. No, I mean, politics, uh, every politician has to be held accountable, regardless right. of party, for are they seeking the common good in, right. in, uh, in, our, in our communities and in our country. Which is and one so, of the reasons I've never endorsed a candidate. I, t right. I tell people my, my job when I was a pastor is to be more, uh, more, more like Nathan. Yes. Than, than to be. The biblical Nathan. Yeah. Yes. But who, who stands alongside the king telling the king what the Lord wants him to hear mm -hmm. versus what he thinks he needs to hear. Well, Gerald, I think you've spent a lifetime of ministry in Dallas doing just that. And you've also helped me learn to do that. And if uh, to whatever extent I succeed, uh, it's in part because of your friendship and model. Well, I, pre I appreciate your friendship and I appreciate uh, the, 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 the work that you're doing here at Wilshire. Uh, not just on behalf, not not just the tra traditional pastoral work, but the prophetic work as well. Thank you so much. Glad to have you on Good God. Thank you so much. Okay. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Guest coordination and social media by Upward Strategy Group. Good God. Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2019 by Faith Commons. The Good God Program is a project of Faith Commons, a nonprofit organization I founded in 2018 to help promote the common good. Doing public theology across faith traditions and across racial and ethnic lines is an important thing today in our communities. We hope you'll continue to enjoy Good God, but look at some of the other things we're doing also through Faith Commons at www.faithcommons.org.